This week's episode is brought to you by K16 Solutions. Whether you need help migrating course content to a new LMS platform or are looking for a more affordable way to archive student data, visit k16solutions.com to learn more about their migration and archiving solutions. That's k16solutions.com. Welcome to the EdSurge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm a reporter and an editor here at EdSurge. It is easier than ever for students to cheat on essay assignments using the internet. And there is growing concern that since the pandemic, this kind of cheating is on the rise. In fact, there is a booming industry of companies that connect students to writers who will do their papers and complete their assignments for them for a price. It's known as the contract cheating industry. And you might be surprised at how easy it is for a student to turn to these essay writers for hire. Many paper writing companies, they have responsive customer service lines where you can chat right away with a live person, ask about things like prices. And those prices can be pretty consistent, about $10 to $12 per page if you give the companies about a week to write your paper. That means students pay these services an average of about 182 bucks per paper, which in the scheme of high college costs, it might not even seem that much to a student willing to do it. Of course, turning in someone else's work as your own is, is definitely ethically wrong, and it's a clear violation of every college's conduct code. And a student who does this, of course, misses out on the whole learning part of college, where the process of writing these papers is the part where they learn the material. So why is so much of this cheating happening? What does it say about the quality of college teaching? And what could be done to curb this contract cheating industry? Today, we're exploring these questions and going inside this world of homework writers for hire. To do that, I talked with someone who spent about 10 years actually doing this work, making a living writing papers for cheating students. These days, he advises colleges and educators on how to combat cheating. And he's out with a new book called The Complete Guide to Contract Cheating in Higher Education. His name is Dave Tomar, and he has also called himself the Shadow Scholar. At least, that was the title of an article he wrote for the Chronicle of Higher Education more than a decade ago, when he first went public with his story. Since then, his thinking about cheating has evolved. And I was really curious to dig in to his personal journey with this shadow industry. I started by asking Dave Tomar to quickly recount the story of how he got started writing term papers for money. The quickest way I can tell it is that when I went to uh, Rutgers University way back in the uh, late 90s and early 2000s, I was an aspiring writer and um, not a particularly ambitious student, Um, uh, you know, and in the search for for paying work, uh, I I found really the only uh, healthy customer base out there were my fellow students. Uh, You know, I'm I'm, I'm sending articles out to to journals and, and, you know, doing my best to get notice, uh, you know, which is, of course, you know, naturally an uphill climb, you know, as a writer. Uh, meanwhile, I had, uh, you know, classmates left and right volunteering uh, to pay me for my services. To help them with their score. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, it was, uh, that was a no brainer because for me, it was my first opportunity to become a, a paid uh, writer. 
so, you know, I, I, uh, I found really quickly a, a particularly healthy uh, target uh, audience with uh, fraternity brothers. Uh, so, you know, once, once your name spread in that circle, uh, you were off and running. Uh, and, and that, you know, like, like I said, this was in the early 2000s, which was also at the time that the, uh, the online uh, cheating business was sort of just uh, kicking off, you know, in the early days of the Wild West Internet. Uh, they were essay mills. And, you know, if you if you go back in time and look at them, they look kind of like horror fanzines. Uh, but in the early 2000s, when uh, businesses like Turnitin did a pretty good job of uh, of stifling that type type of uh, cheating, uh, all of these bespoke essay writing services started to pop up. Uh, a classmate told me uh, about it and I uh, applied for work in 2001 while I was still a student at Rutgers and, and suddenly I had uh, more writing work than I'd ever had in my life. It, it was something that you knew was against the academic rules, you know, especially being a student yourself. So, but did you, did you feel bad about it? I felt bad about the money I was spending to be at Rutgers. <laughs> I, uh, you know, and, and all respect to uh, the, the university and uh, to those who have a positive experience there. Uh, but it just was a poor fit for me. And, uh, you know, as, as, a, as a writer with an interest in building a career, uh, you know, down a somewhat independent path, they're, they're just, you know, try as I might, there were a few resources uh, that, that really could help me along. Uh, so it was a lot of big lecture halls and uh, a really bureaucratic system of administration that made it very uh, difficult to get anything done. And these were sources of frustration that uh, I suppose in retrospect, you might you might say allowed me to rationalize helping students cheat. Um, however, at the time, I just felt a great deal of hostility toward uh, this institution that was costing me a fortune. And so... Uh, to make a little money on the side, and money was pretty scarce for me at the time, uh, I, I never felt any compunction about, uh, about defrauding this institution. So what, what was it then that caused you to break, you know, to break out of it, to, to, to somehow come around to, to kind of being more um, open about the illicit nature of what you're doing and to, to, to share the, 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 your story? Well, you know, two things I'll say. Uh, one, I've I always aspired to be a legitimate writer, uh, and I simply fell into this sort of uh, rabbit hole of uh, essay writing because it was the only way I could find to make a stable living uh, you know, doing it. Second thing I should mention is that I have always, even from day one, been very forthcoming about what I was doing. Um, you know, the, I, I suppose there was sort of a... Um, rebel without a cause attitude about it, you know, because I was uh, really happy to tell anybody that, that would ask what my disappointments were with not just Rutgers, but higher education in general. Uh, you know, I, I, I was always really happy to say, if you ask me what I did for a living, I help students cheat. Uh, I didn't pull a lot of punches about that. However, uh, it is not because I was uh, necessarily proud of it or that I thought, you know, writing material that I couldn't put my name on was was a great goal for a writer. Uh, so 
the entire uh, course of, of that career, I really worked to find other ways to, to write. I, you know, I'd, uh, I tell the story in, in my book about, uh, you know, writing music reviews. Music is one of my great passions. And, you know, I lived in Philadelphia out of college and, you know, it would cost uh, as much to park and, and get one beverage for my, my uh, live show review as, as I would get paid for the work. Uh, you know, with paper writing, I was simply doing a lot better, you know, as a writer than I could uh, at other avenues just out of school. Uh, but I was always working to find my way out. It was just at that 10 year mark that I realized that my way out was, you know, anytime I tell somebody I helped, uh, I helped students cheat for a living, they, they'd say to me, uh, you know, well, first of all, where were you, you know, when I was in school? Um, and then that would be followed by a, a series of questions and a lot of intrigue. And what I started to realize, in spite of how open I'd always been about it, and quite frankly, how open these companies are and how they operate in, in you know, out in open air, that so few people actually knew it went on. Um, and that so many people had so many questions and it, it occurred to me that my best path forward was, um, ironically to sort of just embrace what this role had been and share it with everybody and become a whistleblower. And, uh, you know, I, I had reached a point of frustration doing the job as well, because there's a real burnout element to producing at that level with very little gratification. So, yeah. So if you did this for 10 years and wrote, and so you, and you, by the end of it, you were making real money doing it, right? About how much? Uh, I, you know, my last year was probably my best year, and it was a little over 60000 I think 66000 was probably what I you should know filed for taxes because you do pay taxes uh, when you do that. You know, it's one of these things I try to impress upon anybody that has any questions about it. You tend to think of it as sort of this uh, black market of, of shady drug dealers, but it's not that. It is... Uh, it is a business and, you know, you can find these sites on Google. They have customer service, uh, the better ones anyway. The companies I worked for 20 years ago are still around uh, and repeat business is, is one of the reasons. Uh, so they, they operate above boards in spite of selling an illicit product. Some people may think that contract cheating sites must be some shady underworld, but, but you're saying that's not the case. Well, some of them certainly are. Uh, but what I always uh, suggest to educators is they're not really your biggest problem. The ones that are that that's hidden. Yeah, you know, and, and uh, you know, I, I speak to educators that point out, you know, well, there are uh, contract cheaters out there who have been known to blackmail students. And, you know, there are all kinds of, you know, shady backdoor things that do take place. Uh, and, you know, I worked for at least a dozen companies or more, you know, always it was contract work. So you took what you could get and you'd have a few outlets. Um, and there were a few usually concentrated in places like Eastern Europe uh, that were pretty shady and uh, did not provide a great product. Um, I didn't I didn't stay with those companies too long because they also didn't treat writers particularly well. Uh, so, you know, the point I make is if you think of it as a business, the ones that actually do it well, both on the customer service side and on the employer side, uh, those are your, those are the ones you need to worry about because, uh, they'll survive, uh, and they'll, they'll continue to attract students and create a product and, uh, repeat business is huge because if you write a paper for a student at the beginning of a semester and they have more papers to write, 
and they're the type of student with enough linguistic deficiencies that they have to outsource the work, chances are they're going to need you uh, the rest of the way through. And uh, so I, I definitely worked with students for a semester, a year, three years, you know, full courses of study, full degree programs. And um, so the companies that succeed are the ones that provide a good enough product to have students stay with them through that. You know, it seems kind of it seems kind of surprising because it's so clearly, as you describe in your book, against the the rules to be absolutely handing a student something they're going to turn in as their own work when it's not. But so how does this how does this end up happening where the the companies can um, exist and and be open about it? even though that's their service. Uh, in the back of my book, I believe I include an appendix which has uh, you know, a legal disclaimer from one of the companies that I worked for at one point. Uh, but that's, that's commonplace across the board. Uh, protect yourself with the proper legal language. Uh, uh, you know, call it a study guide. These are editorial services. Uh, we strongly urge you uh, or forbid you from submitting this work as your own. Uh, in other words, enough legal language, and it's really not on the contract cheated company. Uh, you know, I did a little research, uh, you know, while writing my book and found that there are laws on the books. And, you know, I, I, at the time it was 17 or 18 states, it may be more now, uh, that seem to be designed to prevent this type of contract cheating from taking place. However, when you parse the language in these laws, there is a tremendous amount of gray area because there is a tremendous amount of gray area in the world of academics. Uh, you know, there's legitimate academic ghostwriting. One of the reasons I call it contract cheating in my book is because uh, academic ghostwriting is... Uh, on its face and accepted practice, uh, you know, not necessarily for uh, undergraduate students, but, you know, when you get to the graduate and the, uh, and the doctoral level, uh, these things become a lot more fluid. And certainly if you are, um, you know, an associate working on a, a lead professor's research team, ghostwriting becomes a lot more fluid. And uh, so the language that these states use seems to really be also a bit fluid and it, it opens the door for a few disclaimers uh, to keep these companies in business. So how big is this contract cheating industry, This these term paper mill services? So, you know, there are thousands out there. It's hard to get to the bottom of exactly how many entities there are because there's also a lot of uh, syndicating in um, contract cheating. When you, I, I, I always advise people, if you really want to know what it looks like, just Google. Google the kinds of search terms that students would likely use either to find it intentionally or, or accidentally. You know, help me cheat on my essay, you'll find them. But if you also type in, you know, homework help or essay help and you're an honest student, you may also uh, you, you certainly will find them uh, by the thousands. Some are parent companies that own many different faces, uh, you know, and I assume that's to capture keywords and to capture different targets. And uh, it's big enough to serve the demand. And the demand is high. What types of students pay someone else to write their papers for them? And what does this say about our education system? Stay with us. What do UCLA... Old Dominion University, 
University of Memphis, and Miami-Dade College all have in common. Well, they and hundreds of other institutions have used K-16 solutions to help them migrate to their new LMS, then archive their student data. Traditional LMS migration options, like manually migrating courses one at a time, or using bulk migration tools that leave the content fragmented and incomplete, are simply outdated. And so too is archiving student data on an expensive legacy LMS or in unreadable cold storage. Introducing System Migration and Data Archiving by K16 Solutions. System Migration is an automated solution that allows you to move online content from one LMS to another, capturing details such as course structure, quizzes, tests, and even question pools. And with data archiving, administrators can archive student data on K16's platform at a fraction of the price and access that data quickly and easily at any time in their new LMS. Finally, an LMS migration and archiving solution that's kept pace with the rest of technology. To learn more about K16 Solutions products and services, visit k16solutions.com. Now back to the episode. There's a, a sense of the type of student or the types of student who tend to seek out these. What have you found that to be? Well, uh, you know, it's funny. This is one of those conversations um, over the last 10 years, I've really adjusted my thinking, um, not because students have changed, but because what I what I really think our priorities ought to be um, have sort of, um, I, I've, I've focused, you know. Uh, I always talk about the lazy and arrogant students and the entitled students, you know, and they're certainly an entity. And uh, one that I discussed a lot in my first book. But, you know, I've, I've come to think that those students are generally not our problem. Uh, our problem are the desperate students. Our problem, are, uh, our problem is the students who uh, get to college without the linguistic abilities to succeed, without the uh, basic academic tools to conduct research, or even the reading comprehension to understand what is being asked of them by an assignment. Um, you know, a lot of, uh, international students or student ESL students, you know, students for whom English is a second language, it's really commonplace. And it seems that they're not getting the support they need, but equally as disturbing or is the extremely large number of students coming right out of American high schools into college who can't write and, and seem to have pretty, uh, limited reading comprehension ability as well. Uh, so, I have uh, become pretty fixated on this idea, especially in, in my most recent book, uh, that academic desperation is the number one thing that we need to solve if we're going to address cheating. Uh, and so uh, that's, that's the student that I want to focus on. And that's the student that I think is your likeliest future cheater is the one who is struggling, overwhelmed in over their heads. And uh, while wrongheaded in this thinking, essentially thinks that cheating is the only uh, option for them. Right. Interesting. And so in a way you're saying this is not the, the answer is not better policing of these sites, but a looking at um, why are so many students in that desperate situation? Is that right? And changing the educational system to, to get at that issue. Yes, that's, that's absolutely right. You know, I, um, 
I, I had a conversation recently with some of my friends in Turn It In uh, down in Australia, and it's really in the news right now because Australia uh, very recently passed, uh, you know, some legislation that essentially um, restricts access to the 40 uh, sites that they identified as the most prominent contract cheating offenders. Um, and as I was speaking, you know, to, to my friends down there, they asked me, you know, is this going to address the issue? Um, and, uh, you know, I always compare it to a game of whack-a-mole, you know, at a carnival. Uh, you, can, you can bash down those 40 sites. Uh, it doesn't remove the imperative that students are feeling too cheap. So, uh, you know, something else is going to pop up to serve that. Uh, you know, certainly it wasn't the case in my day, but now, you know, social media makes it really, really easy, you know, uh, you know, WhatsApp and things like that, Snapchat to have conversations with purveyors that have no record and have no visibility to the actual educational establishment. Um, but, you know, the real point to me, it's not about will students find another way to cheat? Sure, you know, some of them will, some of them maybe won't. Uh, but here in the U.S., uh, we have a 62% six-year graduation rate. That's 38% of students that are not making it. So I would argue that if you did a really good job of getting rid of all the sites that are out there uh, helping students cheat, that that non-completion number would go up. Uh, and I'm not arguing that, that these cheating sites are doing a great service or helping. What I'm suggesting is if you got rid of them, uh, you are not solving the problem that sends so many um, students into their waiting arms. It seems like from your experience and from some of the research you did for, for your latest book, that there's it's it's hard to police even if you want to police them because it seems like the work that these mills produce is good enough to fool professors. Um, it seems like one of the things that, that it seems out there in the kind of, I think a lot of professors probably have this feeling of like, well, these sites are kind of a joke in that their quality's bad. Um, and, you know, they kind of are not great. These are not A papers coming out of these um, hired uh, writing groups. And yet you, you sort of see it differently or you're, you're saying that that's not necessarily the way to think about um, the, the, the industry. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you, know, you know who else is not producing A papers is a lot of your students. So uh, if you hire a somewhat mediocre paper writing company, or I should say you are matched up with a somewhat mediocre uh, contract writer, uh, then it might be a closer approximation to the type of work that you would hand in. Uh, and, you know, you have to remember that for students who literally, you know, cannot write, uh, they're not trying to write A papers. An A paper would be very suspicious from a student who can't write, you know. They're trying to get the work done. You know, it's an ends justifies the means, get your degree and get out sort of thing. And because... It's Passing the class, not it is passing the class. the class. You know, because college is so transactional for so many people, um, and that's understandable. You know, I don't, I can't even criticize that. It was transactional for me. Uh, you know, once I realized that the education was a little thinner than what I had hoped for, and a little less in, enriching than what I'd pictured, 
uh, it was transactional. I invested in a degree and I was going to get it and get out. Um, I didn't, I didn't cheat. I, you know, that wasn't my area of need, uh, you know, but for, for students where that is the area of need, where the end justifies the means, it was financial for me. But if it is academic, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it can become a pretty pragmatic little investment, you know? Um, and that, you know, so that's, that's the problem that educators face is, uh, you know, if you're looking at cheating companies and saying, well, it would never, it would never pass muster with me because my, my grading standards are this high. Well, I mean, you, you can't honestly look at me and tell me that all your students are creating stellar work. I know because I, I interact with them, you know? Um, and so it just getting it done is enough for some of these students. Yeah. So like you said, the turn it in type of style of service that so many universities have that does a good job of the cut and paste, but, but does not, but does not, there's no filter that really catches these contract cheating, uh, companies. It sounds like. Yeah, there, you know, there are, uh, some technologies that are, uh, being developed right now. And I've had, you know, the opportunity to have some of these ideas shared with me, but you know, a lot of them are based on, um, you know, stylometric uh, assessment, which, you know, reads uh, cues in, in your voice and, and phrasing uh, to, to sort of approximate the likelihood uh, of authorship. You know, so that is, it's not, a, it's not a smoking gun, it's more of a triangulating data to, to see if, you know, if there are any red flags, which in essence is how Turnitin also works, you know. Wow. So there's a possibility that people are building tools to attempt to, it sounds like some sort of forensic thing to like it is. say it's like, very, it's very much that CSI college. Can they, did they cheat? I think the, the early, um, the early, uh, experimentation with this type of stuff was, uh, around, uh, you know, Shakespeare and, uh, and Marlowe and, uh, Ben Johnson and that whole, um, you know, dispute of authorship, uh, Oh, like did Shakespeare write this play? Right, exactly. That, that's where they used the technology. Uh, you know, ba- you know, back oh. in the early days when this was sort of a, um, you know, let's say an MIT lab type of project, right? Um, but now, you know, it's in the hands of a lot of different entrepreneurs who, who see it as the sort of next frontier in cheating detection. Um, I agree that's probably true, um, but as as you uh, remarked, and as I attempted to emphasize everywhere I can. It should not be about policing. It should be about diagnostics. You know, uh, what are, what do students need? You know, if I can identify and raise red flags with students, uh, maybe it's an opportunity to also identify writing needs and intervene. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, interestingly, you did some secret shopper research where you in the now in the modern era you submitted some um, requests and, and bought some essays and tried to run it through a professor. And, and what did you find of like, with this pass? Um, what did you, what did you find in this, in this kind of investigation you did? So, you know, one thing I found was that, you know, generally speaking, the quality of the writing was pretty lackluster and, and disappointing. And I, I worked pretty hard on a lot of my uh, custom essays, and they weren't always amazing, but some of it was really honestly pretty dreadful. Because you were churning out 
pay, you were basically like the incentive was to do as much of it as you could, not to have it be amazing. Correct. You know, the, it was a fortunate byproduct that I got to learn a lot, but uh, you know, it was it was about the volume. You know, that was a grind. Um, and so I know where these writers are coming from. Uh, but, uh, you know, my, my, you know, hypothesis going into it was that a paper, uh, needn't necessarily be good to meet the requirements of a paying customer. And if it met the requirements of a paying customer, then it was, uh, it was meeting its value promise, you know, as a writer, uh, for, for custom essay companies. I, my job was not to write a paper for a professor so that it would receive an A. Um, you know, refer back to our disclaimer. You're not supposed to hand it in. And I know it's a wink, wink, nudge, nudge sort of arrangement. But, you know, from my end, the goal was to, uh, to satisfy the customer requests. And I always chose to think of it that way rather than as writing for a professor because you can't, you, you know, we never guaranteed grades. Those things uh, can be uh, quite subjective. And, uh, you know, so uh, that was, that's just a part of the business is not guaranteeing grades, but guaranteeing customer satisfaction. So uh, in paying for these papers and, and, you know, evaluating them based on certain categories of customer satisfaction, you know, I, I, my goal was to determine, does this meet the um, instructions? Does it fulfill all the formatting requirements? You know, does it answer the, the primary prompt and all, et cetera? You know, uh, to what extent does it actually fulfill the promise of the assignment? Uh, and I graded it on, on that curve. And then uh, I asked a colleague of mine who was a, a professor at uh, Penn uh, here, here in Philadelphia uh, to also review them with full knowledge of where they came from, uh, but just to grade them as he would uh, a professor there. Um, and, uh, you know, he, uh, he had also uh, had some experience at another university that was not quite on the tier of Penn, so he actually evaluated the assignment as he would from the perspective both of, a, of an Ivy League professor and as a, a public school professor, um, which were slightly different scales, uh, it's worth noting. Uh, because the, the quality of student is slightly different. Uh, but uh, there was, interestingly, not a huge divergence between uh, how I assessed the assignments as the um, theoretical customer and how he assessed the assignments as the professor. There was a little discrepancy. All of the papers but one, I believe, if I, I have to go back to my research, but all of the papers but one, I believe, uh, passed muster as a customer, and I think three out of the five would have received a passing grade from the professor. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, there was a little bit of a gap, um, although less than I anticipated, actually, between uh, grading and customer satisfaction. It's so, okay, it's so interesting. And then one of the other things that I was struck by with your kind of long view of this industry of contract cheating was that um, the prices have actually fallen. And it sounds like the retail price, so to speak, is about the same. You said you could buy a paper today for about the same as you could. Strangely, yes. Um, yeah. So that means that that means it's like a easier, you know, it's it, it's sort of more access, access to, to it, it, right? It, 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 it seems relatively inflation proof for some for some reason. Um, you know, even even as the cost of school has skyrocketed. 
so schools up, but the cost of getting an essay is about the same. Which, if you think about it, makes it even more pragmatic for a student that's considering it. Because, you know, you know what's a lot more expensive now? Books. And books were always so expensive. You know, I couldn't afford them when I was in college, so I, I just bypassed books. Uh, but, uh, you know, I just think of that as one peripheral expense. And then you compare that to a student suggesting, maybe I spend $1,000 a semester on, on contract cheating. Uh, and it's uh, not that huge of an investment relative to what you're spending on your education. Do you think, do you have any sense over time of whether there's a more of a blase attitude by more students about like whether this is a, a, a thing they're doing that's wrong, right? Like, it, do you, do you think that's changed at all? Or is it always been students like you who kind of rationalize it, so to speak, by saying like, well, this this is just a con- this is just an arrangement where I need a degree, so I don't I don't really feel that ethically bad. Has, are there more students like that? Do you think now, or is there any change over time? Uh, I I sense that there are probably it's it's a you know in my view when you do the the research and the history of it, there's always sort of been this attitude, you know. But education just costs so much more. Uh, you know, it's the, well, you know, that's not the only thing. It's also that, you know, there was a time a hundred years ago when only 3% of the, you know, college age population went to college. Uh, now it's, uh, you know, it's a lot more inclusive, which is obviously a good thing. But if you're talking about, you know, 16 to 20 million students enrolled, uh, they didn't all come from prep schools and they didn't all come, uh, you know, with a, a great deal of training in English. And so, um, I think that there are probably students that um, view it as a cultural norm and view it as culturally acceptable and therefore don't feel a tremendous amount of guilt over it. However, I, I always point this out. Nobody cheats because they want to, you know, uh, or the vast majority of students and the ones that you should care about do not cheat because they want to. They cheat because they feel they have to. Uh, I am not suggesting that that's true, uh, that they do have to. I'm just saying that that's what they feel. Um, and I, I have interacted enough with students, thousands of uh, customers, to, to say that it's more than anecdotal, uh, this level of desperation that they will either uh, outwardly express or that you will simply be able to infer from the low quality of their written communication. Uh, so, you know, to me... You know, maybe there's a blase attitude because you've invested so much money that you do feel you can rationalize this. Um, but I, I also think that at, at the heart of it, um, you know, whatever the outward attitude is, that, that students don't prefer to cheat. Uh, it's just an outlet that whether it's financial pressure, mental health challenges, you know, the pressure that they impose upon themselves, even elite students who have the ability but, but face a lot of anxiety. Um, and then, of course, those students who simply couldn't finish the work if they tried. Um, you know, these are, these are the customers, these are the, these are the target audiences that are created um, by colleges and preyed upon by cheating companies. Now, you mentioned that there are some countries that are making new laws to try to get at this issue. And I know you mentioned in your book that Ireland was the first. Uh, to, to tell me about what Ireland is doing 
and, and how that might be a model? Well, you know, to be honest, I'd have to check in and see what kind of progress they've had. Um, but, you know, they were sort of the first on the train that Australia is now on, which is, you know, trying to pin down these sites and eliminate them. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I'm not sure what kind of success they've had yet. Um, and, and arguably it's going to take some time to really know. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the, one of the things that troubles me about that, you know, is, you know, it's great. You can eliminate these companies. I have no problem with that. You know, um, if you, you know, if you can, if the legislation uh, can expose them for what they're really doing and parse through the legal language, then you have every right to that, you know, and that's okay. Um, what concerns me about it is that if if you think of this as sort of solving the problems of academic integrity, uh, how much are we sweeping, you know, beneath the surface? Uh, I, I feel like you know, this is not to downgrade the importance of the ethical discussion. Um, I simply feel that we've had that discussion for a long time and, and we're all clear on it, right? Everybody knows cheating is wrong. Students may have a blasé attitude about it, but I don't think there's any lack of clarity on right or wrong. I just think that there are circumstances that either um, make good people feel they must do the bad things or... Um, make people rationalize, good people rationalize doing bad things, right? So, but my point is the ethical conversation has been had and, um, it, you know, I think that we've kind of reached the limits of what that can actually tell us about why students cheat. If you peel back that layer, you know, that ethical layer, I think that you learn so much more about, you know, the educational, the pedagogical challenges, the systemic and economic realities that make students cheat. Um, and so I'm more interested in those things, you know, without dismissing the ethical dimensions. I just think let's move into a different territory of this conversation, you know. What about the pandemic? How has the couple years we've had here of academic lockdowns, more online courses, um, all kinds of challenges for students um, because of COVID, what, how has that changed the contract cheating industry? Well, you know, um, if, if indeed I am at, at all correct about this, and if academic desperation is um, at least a, a leading factor at the heart of cheating, uh, then, you know, the pandemic is something that magnified this desperation on so many different fronts. Uh, I, I don't think that uh, it's any mystery, the mental health toll that it has taken on students, uh, the learning loss that students have experienced at every age, um, and, uh, and then this level of sort of detachment that, you know, it's easy to point the finger at online education and say online education, you know, sort of eases cheating and, uh, and reduces, you know, oversight and all of these things. And yes, that's true. Practically, cheating is easier that way. Uh, but, uh, you know, let's not also forget that all of these schools were uh, shunted into online education without preparation, without training, without infrastructure. So these students have been experiencing uh, a generally inferior brand of online education. Um, and in some cases, 
a level of of detachment from their education that makes cheating almost seem very impersonal, you know. Um, but but more than that, it's it's the sense of sort of isolation from your studies and your and. Um, when you take these factors, the isolation, the mental health challenges, uh, the learning loss, all of these are the kinds of things that have always instigated uh, academic desperation. Uh, and, and so this is, to me, widening the pool of potential and likely cheaters. And uh, that's, you know, so it, it is, again, to just reiterate a point that I am uh, really focused on hammering at all times is that uh, if you really want to stop cheating, uh, there is no silver bullet, uh, but you can start by intervening with students who need this academic help, especially writing intervention. Um, and if I am wrong and academic desperation is not the reason that students are cheating, the worst thing that will happen is that you have helped a lot of students learn to write. Going back, if you had to talk to yourself and when your, you know, Rutgers early days of your online, you know, so you're writing for others to cheat, would you, I don't know, like, would you, would you change anything or would you see it differently now, uh, knowing what you know? I do see it differently now, but I would not have at the time. You know, my, my new book is a very constructive and uh, positive uh, piece. Uh, and, and, um, that is not by device. That's by sort of 10 years uh, of, you know, being uh, independent of this sort of uh, vocation and also having a lot of time to sort of grow and look at education uh, in a more sympathetic light. In other words, I had, had a lot of anger and an axe to grind with my own education. And as you grow and um, you have a kid and all of these things, you start to think about uh, where education is and how many other people are suffering and struggling. And that is my much bigger focus and it's of greater importance to me now. Uh, so uh, that is what is different. Um, and also, you know, this, this was apparent to me as I, as I was working my way out of that line of work, uh, you know, that there are that was not a great contribution to the universe. And uh, I've, I've done my best every day since then to uh, contribute only positively both to the universe and to uh, the field of education. And one of the reasons that, you know, I'm here uh, speaking to you and that I've written the books that I have is because it is my penance uh, for the things that I have done that are not great in the universe to share all that I have learned and all that I know um, unabashedly and without pulling any punches. Uh, so, uh, it's, uh, that's, that's, I think the best I, I can do to reconcile for the actions of the past. Um, and also to compensate for the fact that no, I wouldn't change anything, um, if I could, because, uh, I don't know that anybody would trade the amount of learning, um, that I, um, sort of drilled into myself over those 10 years of, of writing, but, uh, it's, a you know, uh, put it, if you could take it out of the context and, and just be a man in a cave, um, you know, Ed Dante, as per my first book, um, that, that man in the cave learned a tremendous amount. And uh, so I'm, I'm grateful for it because it, it does allow me to, uh, to share with people and, and hopefully to help fix what is wrong, um, you know. Well, honestly, uh, I think I'll leave it at that. Thank you for for you know helping to share with our audience this what you've learned about this uh but this world that 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 you've really had this unique experience with thanks thank you jeff always happy to be here mm -hmm.
This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we bring you frank conversations like this one. If you value this show, please tell a friend about the Ed Surge Podcast or leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode was written and put together by me, Jeff Young, and you can find me on Twitter at JRYoung. Editing by Rebecca Koenig. Music this episode by Rowan Jane. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.